once you're a Christian in Nigeria, your life is always at stake. Those are the words of a sister in the faith from Nigeria called Manga. She knows this firsthand. Nearly a decade ago, she witnessed her father's beheading during an attack against her family and her brother left for dead. She says that as shocking as it may look when we were attacked, we weren't surprised because we know it boils down to the fact that we are Christians. According to the latest World Watch List report that Open Doors has made, which lists down some of the most uh, persecuted countries, in Nigeria last year, there are over 4,600 confirmed reports of Christians being killed for their faith. It's been the most violent persecution of any country in that year. And unlike many countries where COVID restrictions meant that uh, this kind of persecution was settled down for a little while, in Nigeria, it kept going at full force. The violence there is primarily by religious extremists who seek to cleanse their country from what they see as the filth of Christianity. For Nigerian Christians, Persecution isn't a hypothetical or a thought experiment or a thing that you wonder how you'll respond to. It's an ongoing threat that's inseparable from following Jesus. When we hear stories like this in Australia, I think we all struggle to think of how to respond. We are angry that governments can allow these things to happen or even support them. We feel helpless because we're so separated and can't seem to do anything. But I think the biggest thing many of us feel is this sense of guilt, that the things that these Christians are going through are so far separated from the lives of ease and safety that we so often feel in Australia. How should we respond to the severe persecution that is going on throughout the whole world for fellow brothers and sisters, and even in Australia. As we get back to our series in Acts this week, today's passage records the murder of one of Jesus' disciples. I think it shows us that being a disciple means giving your whole life to his mission and to the point of rejection and even death. But first, we need to really catch up because it's been a long time since we've been in Acts. And so you should look at the context of where we are. Um, Acts records everything that Jesus continued to do through his disciples, through the church, after his ascension. And the narrative that it has follows this structure that we see right from the first chapter in verse 8. Talking to his disciples, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So far, in chapter 6, we're really up to the Jerusalem part of this proclamation of the gospel. With great boldness, the apostles have been witnessing amidst rising persecution. So far, they've been arrested and imprisoned and told to keep quiet and stop telling people about Jesus. 
But none of these efforts have stopped the spread of the gospel. God has kept making ways for them to speak to people about Jesus. And the result has been that many people have become disciples of Jesus. The number has multiplied many times, and more and more people are Christians in Jerusalem. Our passage centers around Stephen, and we only find things about Stephen in Acts. Um, The last passage that we dealt with last year um, briefly introduced him as one of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who was brought in to help solve a food distribution problem um, that meant that the other Greek-speaking Christians were not um, getting the same food that they should be compared to the rest. He was one of these men commissioned to the task to help free up the apostles to focus on preaching the words as they should. He only had a brief description. He's a man that was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And in today's passage, we get everything that the Bible has to say about Stephen. And so let's get into it. In verse 8, Stephen is busy doing great signs and wonders amongst the people. It's tempting to think that somehow this is related to this food job that he's been given, like he's doing similar miracles that Jesus did in feeding the people. But I think it's clear from the direction of this passage that these signs and wonders are similar to what the apostles have been doing before him and around him. He's continuing the universal call of Christians to make disciples. And so he's actually speaking the good news of Jesus to people that's being accompanied by these things to show God's power and presence in what's being taught. His particular role in the church was important, but he's still speaking this good news of Jesus because it's part of every Christian's job. And as he does it, he starts to be attacked by the Jews around him. Specifically, it seems to be Jews that had previously been dispersed or enslaved and then brought together again in Jerusalem. This continues the trend so far in Acts where slowly and slowly there's this broader cultural lens that's appearing. But as these people try to stop him, they can't do anything. Uh, It says that they couldn't withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Their complaints come soon later in their description, but it's clear that they couldn't overpower this man who was empowered by God's spirit. But they had a plan B. They started conspiring against him, by planting men to make claims of him blaspheming against Moses and God. And this stirs up people so much to the point that he's brought to the Jewish high council. And here again, they plant false witnesses that bring big accusations against him. They claim that he's speaking words against the temple and the law and that specifically he's teaching that Jesus will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to them. This whole situation sounds a lot like the treatment that Jesus received, doesn't it? Like Jesus, they're conspiring to stop him. Like Jesus, they're falsely accusing him of blasphemy. He seems to be speaking Jesus' message to the people. And like Jesus, they're putting him on trial. As they get ready to hear him, they see that his face is like the face of an angel 
And this seems to be pointing to what should already be obvious. Stephen is one of God's faithful people, innocent of these serious charges and radiating God's glory in the same way that Moses radiates God's glory when he's been with him in his presence, in the same way at the transfiguration that people's faces were shining too. Finally, we get to the big chapter of chapter 7, which is the focus point of today, where the high priest asks for Stephen's defence. But instead, what's amazing about what Stephen says is that it's not really a defence of him personally. It's a lot more like a sermon or a counterattack against the people who are accusing him. Instead of uh, defending himself, Stephen reverses this whole situation onto the people. He redirects the blame to his audience. He shows how it's his accusers that are the guilty ones of the very things that they're accusing him of. And he does this through an amazing summary of the story of God's people from the Old Testament that leads to that very moment. There's so much in the chapter, and we've already heard it all read out, and it's humongous, and so I'm not going to be able to go through it word for word. But as we get to each section, we're going to focus in on the major themes that are going on at each stage. And so I'll highlight them as we go to each bit. Uh, The first chunk that we get to is verse 8. And it's all about God's promises, and particularly to Abraham. And it's a summary of Genesis 12 all the way to chapter 36. In this part, Stephen outlines the way that God called Abraham to go to a land he would show him. And when he shows him this land, he makes big promises to Abraham. Even though he has no children, this land would be given to them as a lasting possession for his offspring to come. And his offspring would be sojourners and later enslaved. But God would bring judgment to save them and to bring them to worship him in this promised land. He gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision to mark these generations to come as partakers of this promise. And already at the start of verse 8, you see these promises coming about through these unlikely generations that follow him of his son Isaac, and Isaac's sons Jacob, and all of Jacob's sons become the patriarchs of Israel. These promises are core to the identity of Israel, Israelite people, and they get revisited a lot during the speech. But as it starts moving, two other dominant themes come about, themes of rejection and salvation. The first of these is in a small way in verses 9 to 16, and it's a summary of the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. Joseph was rejected by his brothers because they were envious and jealous of his standing with his father, and they sold him as a slave, yet God was with him. He rescued Joseph and gave him favor with the king of Egypt who made him a ruler over the whole land under him. And God uses this rule to bring salvation to Joseph's family from the famine that stretches out over the land. His brothers who rejected him, his father and all their descendants find home in Egypt and find safety and food and life. 
This is the start of a pattern that just gets more and more big as it gets to Moses of rejection of God's faithful servants amidst salvation. And so as we get to Moses in verses 17 to 43, this part is split into three sections in itself that are big 40-year chunks. And so part one, the promises of God made to Abraham and Nehah The people had grown and multiplied but become enslaved and the king of Egypt now, the new pharaoh, tries to control them by killing their newborns. Yet God saves Moses through the unlikely and unexpected way of adoption through Pharaoh's daughter and he grows up and becomes mighty in words and deeds under the education of the Egyptians. Part one, first 40 years. Second 40 years. Moses heads out and he saves an Israelite from the oppression of an Egyptian and avenged him through killing that Egyptian. Moses saw this as the start of God giving people salvation by his hands, but the people didn't see it that way. The next day he tried to reconcile quarreling Israelites, but they rejected him. In verses 27 and 28... They say, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses, rejected by his true people, flees to the land of Midian and starts a family there. Part three, after another 40 years, Moses has an encounter with God at the burning bush God tells him in verses 34 and 35 that I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I'll come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Stephen comments that this Moses who they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God uses Moses, the one they had rejected, to bring salvation to his people. He performs signs and wonders. He promised this greater prophet to come from amongst them. He received the law from God. And yet at this high point, the people show their ultimate rejection of him and God. They instruct Aaron... Moses' brother, to make an idol. He made a golden calf, and they made sacrifices to it, and they rejoiced in the work of their hands. Rather than worshipping the true and living God, they reject him and his prophets and worship the work of their hands. This turning away from God and from his faithful servants becomes an enduring pattern for God's people, And it's picked up in verses 42 and 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you not bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rufan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
Stephen's bringing in a reference to Amos, one of the prophets from chapter 5 of his book. And it's written much later, but it's showing this big scale and result of the unfaithfulness of God's people. Instead of bringing sacrifices to God, they brought sacrifices to idols. And ultimately, they received God's judgment. Not the enemies who had been their captors, but themselves. The sustained pattern of rejection and wrong worship ultimately leads to the great judgment of exile many years later. And so, wrapping up in his Old Testament summary, Stephen then brings us to view the idea of the temple in God's dwelling place as it progresses from Joshua to Kings. God instructs Moses to bring, make a tent for him, and they continue to bring this tent with them as God delivered them from the hands of the nations in between them and their promised land. Eventually, um, King David asked to build a special permanent dwelling for God, and it's given as a task to his son. But Stephen's point is that God doesn't need a physical house for himself to dwell in. He hasn't needed one before. Stephen quotes from Isaiah 66, God saying, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is saying that God rules in heaven over the whole world. He made everything in it. He made all the things that they made this temple with. Nothing made from human hands can truly contain God. God has shown the way he can be with and communicate with his people all through the chapter. God was with Abraham in the land he first called him from. He was with Joseph in rescuing him and blessing him in Egypt. He was with Moses in Egypt and in Midian and on mountains and all through the 40 years of the wilderness. And now, in the time of Stephen, Jesus has come where it's God seen clearly dwelling among his people. Jesus talked about himself, his body, as the new, true, and lasting temple. And in the new covenant that Jesus brings, no longer is there this need to gather around this particular place with particular sacrifices. Christians now gather around Jesus and his completed sacrificial work on the cross. When Jesus speaks of the temple being destroyed and being raised again, he was speaking of his body. But the implication is that the old temple and the old ways of serving in it, the old sacrifices and the old systems are no longer necessary. Jesus' death and resurrection brings an end to the regular sacrifices and duties. And after his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in Christians. And so we get to the final bit of Stephen's speech. He's finally addressing the audience. They'd claim that Stephen was blaspheming against God and Moses, against the temple and the law. And yet by doing this, they've shown themselves to be the ones at fault. The last few verses show that through the prophets until now, the people kept up this rejection of God and his messengers until the ultimate rejection and murder of God's son. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They're doing nothing new. This persecution that they're doing now, it's been the same that the people have done for generations before. They've received the law, but they've been the ones who haven't kept it. They might be circumcised outwardly, but they demonstrate in the way that they listen to this message of forgiveness and hope offered in Jesus that they are uncircumcised on the inside. They look like God's people, but they're demonstrating their ultimate rejection of him and his promises, and they show themselves as standing outside of his promises. And so naturally, hearing all of this, once Stephen gets to that climactic point, the crowd doesn't take it too well. They become enraged. They start grinding their teeth. I don't hear that much these days. But the final straw comes after Stephen announces his vision. In verses 55 and 56, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus sees the risen and ascended Jesus standing at the right hand of God, witness of this injustice, witness of the people's rejection of him. If Jesus was rejected and persecuted and killed, it shouldn't be surprising that his disciples now face the same treatment by people that hate them and their message because they hated Jesus and his message. Jesus promised to come and return and judge and he's standing at the ready for it. And then, um, let, me, let me crouch up, sorry. But they still refused to listen. They dragged him out and they stoned him. And just before he dies, Stephen prays to Jesus, asking him to receive his spirit and not hold the sin of the people against them. And he dies. Stephen's death is the first recorded death of a Christian since the ascension of Jesus. But it's nothing new, is it? Jesus um, has shown and taught, and so his people show and teach, that all through the Bible story, there are people of God that have been killed and rejected for speaking God's words. Again, if Jesus was rejected... If these prophets pointing to him were rejected of old, then it makes sense that the people who keep on with this message will be rejected or even killed for what they have to say. This death that comes is the catalyst for a great persecution against the whole church in Jerusalem. And this persecution scatters everyone except the apostles everywhere around Judea and Samaria. Saul comes up for the first time and people lay their coats at his feet as they were stoning Stephen. He approved of Stephen's death 
And in verse 3, he's ravaging the church, seeking out and imprisoning Christian men and women because of their faith in Jesus. This same Saul, who would become Paul later, the apostle of the Gentiles. But we'll get to that later. (laughs) This passage starts with Stephen speaking and doing amazing things, empowered by God, by his spirit, and ends with the whole church in Jerusalem under attack by those that hate its message. It becomes a huge turning point in the book of Acts. So far, all of this proclamation has been going on in Jerusalem. But next week, we'll see that what seems like terrible news, God uses for good, in that all of these disciples start witnessing for Jesus in all the places they're scattered to. But I won't steal Ken's thunder for next week. (laughs) But with the spread of the gospel from here onwards to new places and new people, the persecution doesn't end, does it? It's continued and brutal, and it continues today, not just with the thousands of Christians that are killed every year, but in countless other forms of abuse. Last year, again, according to some of the stats from Open Doors, over 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Over 6,000 believers were detained without trial or arrested or sentenced or imprisoned. Nearly 4,000 Christians were abducted. And they classify 55 countries as currently experiencing very high levels of persecution, which is spread out around more than 300 million Christians. Until Jesus returns, many will keep rejecting his good news, and many will keep hating his disciples that speak it, even violently and even to the point of death like we've seen in the passage. How does reading of the murder of Stephen help us as we consider persecution today? I think the overriding point of the passage is that, that's true for all Christians, is that disciples of Jesus give their whole lives to his mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. Disciples of Jesus give their whole lives to his mission. Christians are given the best news imaginable to share with the world, but so many hate it and reject it. And so following after Jesus looks like following him in his rejection and suffering that has come after generations of God's people being rejected and even killed. It looks like giving your whole life to him. I think there's two parts that flow on from this. The first is that Disciples make Jesus known, expecting and not avoiding real persecution. Christians should expect rejection and not acceptance. It's weird for us to be in a country where for years Christians have enjoyed privilege and respect and honour. We're so used to taking the path of least resistance in many areas of our lives of trying to avoid conflict at home or at work or in the communities that we're part of. And I think that seeps into our witness and our making disciples of those around us. We don't want to confront people too quickly with the gospel. To talk about nice and acceptable things of the Christian life, that's good. So community, helping people in need, but not saying that they're wrong about themselves and God. 
we share about our faith when we're asked rather than speaking it unprompted to people. We're so scared of rejection that sometimes our closest friends and family, we delay or even avoid telling because of the fear of what they would do in response to us in being called to repent and believe of the broken relationships that that could cause. We think maybe our different lives are enough, even in the absence of words, but in the absence of words, we show our lives really aren't that different at all. Refusing to speak your faith means that you really don't look that different to everyone around you. In Australia, it's unlikely right now that as a Christian, that's public, you would be killed or imprisoned or physically attacked. It's not a common experience. And it sometimes feels like that means there's no persecution here. But I've heard of countless Christians who have lost jobs, who have lost friendships, who have lost respect from everyone around them, who have lost husbands or wives because of their faithful trust and life in Jesus. And I think these things would happen more and more if more Christians took up the call seriously in making disciples publicly and boldly. I'm not saying someone's a better Christian if they are rejected more. I'm not saying we should be careless and unloving and unwise in the words we use. The goal isn't rejection, persecution or suffering. It's to make disciples. But persecution, rejection and suffering go hand in hand with that. So often the persecution of suffering gets in the way of us being bold enough to take on this goal. What are some ways that we can keep helping ourselves expect this, to actually expect and not avoid persecution in our lives? I think there's two quick things that help. The first one, and that's what Stephen's been doing, is to read our Bibles. It's everywhere. Stephen made a case through the Old Testament that God's people for centuries have been rejected for speaking his truth. And it's the same through all the New Testament writing. Very soon, rampant persecution would rise, not just amongst the Jews, but across the Christian spread everywhere. Being a Christian meant facing suffering for being true to the message of Jesus. And so read about it in the Bible and be reminded that this is still true today. I think the second thing is actually hearing and praying about persecuted Christians that are all around the world now. Good places to start are looking at the Open Doors website or going to Barnabas Fund, or, and there's plenty of other organisations that give big high-level summaries of countries and things that are going on in them. You might like to pray for specific missionaries or churches that are in persecuted countries that you could find details for on um, missionary organisations like CMS or OMF or um, Baptist World Aid and others. Disciples of Jesus expect to suffer persecution as they make Jesus known. And so let's keep reminding ourselves, even as we live in a comfy place, that it's real. I think the second thing that flows from this idea that being disciples means giving our whole lives is that disciples are empowered and emboldened by Jesus' presence, both his presence with the Father and in us by his Spirit. 
Jesus' position with his father shows that he's the one ruling. He's in authority over the whole world, and so even as tyrants seek to kill and destroy Christian communities, it doesn't catch him by surprise. He sees it. Human being with his father means that even in death, life is certain. He promises to receive his people and they'll be with him and they look forward to an eternity with him. Him being in this authority means that he will judge faithfully and finally and completely when he returns. So often when we feel powerless, it's because we can't do anything. It seems like these people uh, are so boldly persecuting the church that they don't even think it's possible for them to be stopped. Jesus will put an end to all of this one day when he returns. Seeing Jesus for where he is with the Father means that we are encouraged and emboldened to keep going because we see him as in charge, we see him as receiving and giving life and that he will judge the wrong of the people. I think the second thing is that it's been obvious through what Stephen's doing and through the whole of the book of Acts that these people are encouraged and emboldened by the work of the Spirit in them. Many of these guys are ordinary men, some of them from common backgrounds, and yet they speak these eloquent things about the truth from the Bible. They speak them boldly, without fear. They speak them even as they're being attacked, wishing that people who are attacking them would come to trust in Jesus themselves. It's not based on their abilities to win people towards God. God, by his spirit, turns hearts towards him as they hear his message. Jesus being with the church, with every one of his disciples, by his spirit, means that God is with us through all, and we are empowered in our weakness to do this task of making disciples. Before I close, let me share a bit more from the words of that sister we heard about from before in Nigeria. In her reflections of the nine or ten years since that attack, she sees herself and her family as being more public in their faith and more strong and committed than ever in being Christians. She said, after the attack, the way I practice, the way I worship change, it gives me resilience to practice faith more, to worship all the more. We prayed the more, we seek the face of God the more, and the Holy Spirit is always there to encourage us. The call to follow Jesus, the call to be a disciple that is making disciples is a costly one. It demands our whole life in following him, even to the point of suffering, of rejection and death. But rather be surprised by it, rather than being unexpected, we've seen it's nothing new. We've seen it's just part of the Christian life. Jesus was rejected and killed, and so his people that proclaim his message of forgiveness through faith in him will follow in this same rejection. We need God's help 
as we keep on this, this task as a church, as we keep proclaiming Christ and making disciples ourselves. So let me pray for God's help as we do this together. Heavenly Father, we grieve with the churches throughout the world who face rejection, who face constant threats of violence, of abuse, of kidnapping, of death, because they are proclaiming the truth about Jesus, the same truth that we have heard and the same truth that we proclaim here today. Father, help us to know that this is part of the Christian life. Help us to pray for your people here in Australia and all around the world that experience this. Let that remind us more and more of the urgency of the task at hand that all people need to know Jesus. Lord, help us to speak boldly, knowing that you are in control, that you empower us by your spirit, and that nothing will stop your gospel as it goes out. And even if some of us might suffer and die, that when Jesus returns, there will be a great multitude of people from all nations worshipping him forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.